you would, hey, grab a Bible with me. Get to Exodus chapter 3, Exodus 3. If you don't have a Bible and a seat back somewhere in front of you, you'll find one. And if you don't own a Bible, please leave with that today. Um, as you settle into uh, Exodus 3, let me just uh, start with a question. The, conv- the, the question might uh, have some conviction built into it, but it's not for the purpose of making us uh, feel guilty. But, but I've been pondering on this as I've been studying this passage this week, and I want to lay it before us today. Uh, when's the last time you dwelled or meditated or were studying the truths of who the Lord is? And just the depth of the reality of the character and nature of who he is led you to tremble. Has there ever been a time that you've been mining the depths of scripture and something about his character led you to weep? Has there ever been a time where something from the pages of scripture or something from a time of prayer has made you get up and jump for joy? Has his goodness ever brought you to your knees? Has his greatness ever laid you flat on your face? I ask this, and I've been, I've been wrestling myself with this reality for this reason, because if God, is, if God is great, and is our God great? If God is as great as we, as we proclaim that he is, and as we know that he is, that he's a creator of all, there's no one higher, there's no one more powerful, that he is God of gods. If he is so great, then why am I often more moved? Why are my affections often more outwardly stirred by a big touchdown my team scores or a raise at work or some temporary accomplishment? Now, I I, I don't lay that forward. I want to give two caveats to that. The, The first caveat to that is I don't believe the Christian life is just merely these mountaintop, 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 mountaintop. I don't believe that to be a good Christian means we just go around weeping and trembling all the time. But I, but I do believe, and I think you would agree with me, that there should be moments in our walk where we've, we've been encountered, we've, we've been confronted by a holy God that leaves, leads to our emotions, our affections being deeply stirred. You with me on that? I ask that because um, Moses today is going to have an encounter with the living God. And in his encounter with the living God, his life will never be the same. That Moses' life, and we'll see it as we walk through Exodus, it's not always these mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. There's a lot of years of his just walking with the Lord, not on the mountaintop. But there are these encounters with the Lord that deeply impact and deeply change the trajectory of his life. And and what we're going to see today is one of them. God is going to show up and he's going to call Moses back to the land of Egypt to do what he has made Moses to do, to lead God's uh, people out of bondage in the land of Egypt. Uh, Last week we saw that God is this God who he hears, he remembers, he sees, he knows, that he's an intimate God with us. He is not far off, but he sees his people in his pain and he's willing to to intercede and interject into that. And God's going to come and have an exchange with Moses to lead him to this. But this is not going to be a simple exchange. Um, uh, Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 4 are these, this, this ongoing dialogue between God and Moses as, as God calls him 
back to the people of Israel. But now, I, I need us to see something today, that, that Exodus chapter 3 and 4 really work together, and that what I'm preaching today and next week is one sermon that I'm breaking into two parts. And I'm breaking it into two parts because I was trending towards about a 90-minute sermon today, okay? And so one sermon broken into two parts, but, but what we have to see in Exodus 3 and 4 is something that is often missed. I think sometimes when this, this, this interaction between God and Moses is preached about, the focus can, can be on all the excuses Moses gives. And the application can be something like, obey God when he calls you. Now, there is some truth to that. And we will see all the excuses that Moses gives. But what I believe this passage is actually all about, and what I believe will even bring deeper application into our life, is the way that God confronts each of these excuses and how he reveals more of who he is after each of the excuses Moses gives. This week and next week in these two chapters are really all about uh, ten characteristics of God's greatness that we need to see. And so I, I want to give the big idea of this week and next week, and don't even try to write it down. I'm telling you, don't even try to write it down, okay? You're just going to get halfway through and get frustrated when the slide goes off the screen, okay? It's long, and it's long on purpose. It's a run-on, and it's a run-on on purpose. It's overwhelming, and it's overwhelming on purpose. You won't fully grasp it all at once when I say it, and it's that, it's that way on purpose, because our God is an incomprehensibly great God. And he shouldn't be boiled down into some trite statement. But what we're about to see in these two chapters is this. God is a holy and personal God who goes with us. He is self-existent and sovereign, full of supernatural power. He's our maker and helper who possesses all authority, is perfectly just and worthy of worship. He's holy and he's personal. You're going to see that today. He goes with us. You're going to see that today. He is self-existent. You're going to see that today. He's sovereign. You're going to see that next week. He's full of supernatural power. You're going to see that next week. He's our maker and helper. You're going to see that next week. He possesses all authority. You're going to see that next week. He's perfectly just and he's worthy of worship. You're going to see that next week. People of God, I'm telling you. I said it when we started this series, and I want to say it again here today. Our greatest need, our greatest need is to know rightly who our God is. We say around here all the time, worship is a response of praise and adoration to God because of who God is. What that means is we can't praise him or worship him the way he's worthy of that if we don't continue to grow in the understanding of who he is. So today is an investment in that reality. One sermon, two parts. Let me pray and let's get into it. Father, I pray right now for uh, any who've walked in the room today who are physically tired. Lord, I pray in their fatigue, Lord, would you meet them with a deep reality of who you are. Lord, I pray for those who've walked in the room today who are, there's just, just a lot going on and there's a lot of distractions. Lord, would you, would you orient their heart and mind right now to the deep truths of who you reveal yourself to us as? 
God, I pray for anyone who's walked in here who's angry, who can't understand where you are and can't understand how you would allow whatever's going on to be going on. Would you reveal your goodness to them, God? Show us who you are from your word, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Uh, We saw last week that Moses had fled from the land of Egypt as a fugitive after committing murder and after uh, Pharaoh was coming for his own head. And so uh, off he went and he settled in the land of Midian. He says when he got to Midian, he sat down by a well. We have a saying around here and the saying goes where there's a well, there's a There's a wife. And so he meets uh, the daughter of the priest of Midian. In uh, chapter 2, that man goes by the name Ruel. In chapter 3, he's called Jethro. One man, two names. That makes sense, right? Why why is that? Uh, Jethro literally means his excellency. So it's possible that Jethro is a title given to Ruel. But one man, two names. It's Moses' father-in-law. Moses has married one of his daughters. And Moses is tending his father-in-law's sheep. Now, it's really important that we look at where Moses leads the sheep out to pasture. And it says in the first verse here, uh, to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to a place called Horeb. And Horeb is described as the mountain of God. This is a place we also know as the area of Mount Sinai. So this is a a, a really key place throughout the book of Exodus. This is where, as Moses one day will lead the people of Israel out, they will meet with God, and we'll get to that in the second half of the book. But this this, this right now is not when Moses will meet with God with the people. It's where Moses will meet with God all by himself, and we see that in verse 2. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Is this a normal day for Moses or an abnormal day for Moses? Fire catches the eye. It does for all of us. I was driving up 31 last night, and off in the distance, I saw the, the, you know, the smoke billowing. And as we drove by, you look, you look when there's fire. And for Moses, it's no different. If you can imagine what, what I'm sure, I don't know from personal experience, but I'm sure it's the typical mundane life of a shepherd of leaning on a staff and watching sheep. When Moses' eye is caught by this bush that's on fire, he watches this. But Moses is used to something about fire that we're used to. The more a fire burns, the more it typically subsides. As the, as the bush should have been consumed, the fire should have gone down. And Moses says, that is not the case here. I need to go see what is happening. And what Moses is doing is he is approaching what he thinks is an odd natural phenomenon. What he's actually going to find is waiting for him as a supernatural encounter with the living God. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. 
Now, I, I want you to help me here, and I, it's going to be stating the obvious, but I think it's important. Who does it say called to Moses out of the bush? God called to Moses. That this is not an encounter with just an angelic being. This is a, an encounter with the living God. And I want us to see that clearly from the text here. In verse 2, we're told that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. Now, I want you to note there, it doesn't say an angel of the Lord. It says the angel of the Lord. In verse 4, we're told that uh, the Lord saw that he turned aside and God called to him out of the bush. This is an encounter with God himself. This is what we would call a theophany. Uh, a theophany, very simply, is an appearance of God. An intense manifestation of the presence of God that is accompanied by an extraordinary visual display. We can all agree with that. What, what I would also add to this is I also believe that uh, this appearance from God, when you see the angel of the Lord mentioned, is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. And so, remember, Jesus was not created in Bethlehem. Jesus always was. And as you see in the Old Testament, uh, when the angel of the Lord appears, it is my belief that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Christ. I, I'm in some good company with other biblical scholars, but that's something you and I could grab a scone and a coffee and disagree and debate on. And we, you always debate over a scone and coffee, if you haven't figured that out yet. But what we have here is Moses, a flawed, unholy man, being met and encountered by the presence of a holy God. And because of that, there's some things that God spells out of how this encounter is to happen. Look at what it says in verse 5. Then he, then God said, do not come near. Let that sink in a minute. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is what? Is holy ground. Moses, Moses, Moses says, here I am. And God says, don't come any closer. This is a theme we will see repeated in the book of Exodus. You'll see it when God appears to the people on Mount Sinai. He'll, he'll tell the people to leave a distance from the mountain, and Moses himself will go up as a mediator for the people. God in his holiness cannot be approached by man in their unholiness. And right here from the very first encounter with Moses, there's a command to keep distance. It's not only a command for distance, Moses is also told what? Take off your sandals. De distance, now deshewed. The place you are standing on is holy ground. The one who you are communicating with is the holy one. And so there's distance, there's Moses deshewed. Now look at Moses' response when God reveals himself directly to him. Verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Distance deshewed. Now 
debased, laid low. Moses hid his face from the Lord because he was afraid to look at God. As Moses is being encountered by a holy God, he replies the way we see is consistent throughout all of Scripture. That when God shows up on the scene, people aren't light or flippant in their interaction. They hide their face in fear. Or as Isaiah says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. When we in our broken, unholy fallibleness are confronted by a holy God, it leads to distance, hiding your face, being laid low. And this is where we got to start today. The first thing that's revealed in this interaction between God, is Mo- God and Moses about the greatness of our God is this. Our God is holy, holy, holy. Our God is holy, holy, holy. And I want to start just with a question in regards to that for us. When is the last time we have been healthily humbled by the holiness of God? Moses hides his face in fear. Isaiah cries out, woe is me. When we come across in Scripture the angelic beings crying out, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. How how does that interact with our human heart? Is our life marked by a deep reverential fear of God over the reality of his holiness, his otherness, and how how completely low we fall short of that. I want to just start today by calling us people of God back to a high view of the holiness of God. A.W. Tozer says this about the holiness of God. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. Don't you agree with that? Like when you try to imagine the holiness, the otherness, the, the, the complete purity of God, it's like, Lord, my brain cannot even get around that. You are so other than us. You are so pure in every way. You are so holy in every way. But I think what we can do is in trying, and oftentimes well-intentioned, in trying to make God more relatable, more palatable to our culture, more more whatever you want to say, more contemporized, we lower our view of his otherness and his holiness, and we people cannot do that. We can never lower our view of God's holiness. How do we know? If we can't even attain, if we can't even imagine his holiness, how, how, do, how might we know of what some symptoms of a low view of the holiness of God might look like? I'll start with this one. I think sometimes a symptom of a low view of God is, is just by the way we talk about him. You hear his name used in vain by, people, by both people who profess Christ and those who don't. There can be such, you know, flippancy just in the way we talk about God. I think another symptom of a low view of the holiness of God would be the way we view our sin. 
It's striking to me in Psalm 51 how as David is lamenting the sin that has been called out on his life, his high view that his sin was ultimately against a holy God. Do we remember that our sin is ultimately against a holy God? But I, but I want us to note here that as, as, God, as God interacts with Moses here, there's distance, there's a de-shooing, there's a debasing of the human. But now, new covenant people sitting here on this side of the cross, you should be sitting on the edge of your seat going, yeah, pastor, but, anyone, you with me? But there is good news. There is a way to a right relationship with a holy God, you with me? But the way, listen to me, the way is not to bring down our view of the holiness of God. So what is the way? How do we as broken, unholy, you know, fallible people, how could we ever have a right relationship with a holy God? The nature of his character of how that happens is spelled out next. Look at what it says in verse 7. It says, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Now stop right there. Again, we're reminded that we have a God who hears, who sees, and who knows the sufferings of his people. These are the act, these action words of God that we unpacked in detail last week. But, but there's another action that God says here as verse 8 begins. He says, and I have what? And I have come down. D- don't miss that. That is deeply profound. That a holy God who cannot be approached in, in, in our unholiness, he hears the cries of his people, he sees their misery, he knows, and he is willing to condescend and come down into the suffering of his people. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." This holy God is concerned for the plight of an unholy people. This holy God is willing to come down and to deliver his people out of bondage in Egypt and lead them to this land flowing with milk and honey. We have a concerned, near, and personal holy God. It doesn't get any better than that. The second reality we see of God is this. Our God is personal and near. You see this here in the repeated refrain throughout these chapters. I see, I hear, I know. But now this new phrase of the actions of God, I have come down. And I can't help but point us to the foreshadowing of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when it says that we have a God who comes down, God has come down in the form of man by sending his son, Jesus Christ, 
who as God looked on us in our lostness, in our sin, in our separation and distance from him and his holiness, he made a way by sending his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. The moment we believed, God says that we're saved by faith. The moment we put faith in the saving work of the cross, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven and the righteousness of Christ is imputed or given to us. This is the good news of the gospel. And so the way we draw near to a holy God isn't by God decreasing or minimizing his holiness. The way we draw near to a holy God is by Christ maximizing the righteousness he freely gives to us by faith. That's amazing. You with me? Tozer says it like this. We must take refuge from God in God. Forgive so much, Tozer, but if you've never read Knowledge of the Holy, come on. Thanks, Allie. We have to see this. Because I think it's so easy, again, and I'm sorry that there's so much critique of like our, our kind of the culture we live in, but I think it's important for us to have a biblical mindset. There, there's so much when the gospel is shared just flying through all the holiness of God part. And getting to like, he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. That is true. Everyone say, that's true. He loves you and wants a relationship with you. But we must first be confronted by the fact that the creator God of the universe is holy, holy, holy. And we are not. Until we've been confronted by that, we will never be comforted by the atoning death, sacrifice, and imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That both sides, and I'm dancing up here now, both sides are crucial in an understanding of the gospel message. And you see both sides of that gospel here. Holy, 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 keep your distance, but oh, by the way, I'm the God who comes down and bridges the gap. So, Moses has been called and commissioned to go back to Egypt by the holy God of the universe who is concerned for his children. And Moses will say, of course, Lord, whatever you say, I'll go right now. Not quite, right? We see here in verse 11... But Moses said to God, God has just called him to go back. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So if you can imagine the scene at the burning bush and the Lord is speaking to Moses out of the bush and God says, so go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to deliver my people out of the bondage in Egypt to lead them into the... And Moses said, I can't do that. Lord, do you know who you're talking to? Murder in my past, trained as a shepherd in fields of many. I am not the guy for that kind of job. Moses actually, I think, has a right assessment of who he is, but he has a wrong application of what that assessment should mean. Look at God's response, verse 12. He said, but I will be with you. Let me read that again. But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
And so Moses says, who am I? I can't do that. Who am I? I'm a nobody. I can't, I can't do this. How does God reply? What does God say? I'll be with you. And then God gives them a promise. And this will be the sure sign. You're going to worship me on this mountain. This will happen because I am going with you. Third thing, pull out of this passage is this. Our God goes with us. God did not come and call and commission Moses because of Moses' internal greatness. I really want you to notice God's response to when Moses says, who am I, is not the response you often hear of the wisdom of our day. Moses goes, who am I? I'm no one great. I can't do this. The wisdom of our modern day often goes, you're so great. Come on. Think higher of yourself. Reach down, dig down in, and pull out that inner. God doesn't reply like that at all. Instead, what does he say? No, I'm going with you. People of God, the answer is not found in digging down into some internal greatness in which we possess. The answer to the life we walk of following and obeying God is found in reaching out to the external greatness of the great God we follow who goes with us. Last weekend, I'm sitting in a room with a loved one, not part of this church, but a loved one um, in my life whose life is in a place of chaos due to their own sin. And if you could imagine the room we're sitting in, there's kind of counselors in a circle, some on a phone, some in person. And, and as, you know, we're going around trying to encourage and help and lift this person out of the pit. I hear so much counsel. You know, one person over here says, you, you're, so, you're so great, man. You're so great. I see the greatness in you. You need to tap into the greatness. You need, and another person, you, you, I've seen you again and again. You are, you are great. You are mighty. You can do this. And I'm listening to this, and I'm going, this is not the answer. And I'm praying as the, we're going around the circle, and it comes to me, and I'm just like, listen, man, I love you. I love you, but you're not great. The fact that we're sitting in this room is a testament to that. But accessible to you today, if you will put your faith in Jesus Christ, is the greatness of a great God who promises to go with you and lift you out of this pit. It is so important that we stiff arm the counsel of the world that says tap into your internal greatness. You don't have any. You're like, honey, get the coat. We are out of here. No, no, no. It's better. It's better. Because, right, can we be honest? You know you're not great. I know I'm not great. The news is better. The God of the universe, the great God of the universe says he'll go with us if we are in Christ. That's way better. And so the answer God gives when Moses says, who am I? It's not, hey, Moses, you're so good. You know, rise up, dig it. No, he says, no, I'm going with you. You want to know what's cool? Little spoiler alert. Later in the story, Moses is going to know this, and he's going to plead with God to remain with him because he says, God, it's only in your going with us that we have any hope. And so, holy God of the universe who is concerned and cares and has now promised to go with Moses, has sent Moses, and Moses now for sure is going to say, like, I'm in, right? Let's do this. No. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? 
Moses goes, God, you're going to send me back to the people of Israel in Egypt. And, and you know, I, I, right, if you, if you could play this out, hey, huddle up, everyone. God has sent me to you. Right? Like if, like if I knocked on your door this morning, I'm like, listen, God has sent me to you. Like in, your, in the human wisdom, like Moses is just thinking about this in terms of like human wisdom. Yes, his response should be, yes, Lord, you have said I will go. But he's playing all this out and he goes, what, what, oh really, God, God sent you to us. What, what is this God's name? And now in God's reply, you get one of the most personal interactions in all of Scripture in which so much of the rest of redemptive history and scripture will continuously be tethered back to how God reveals a personal and proper name of who he is. Look at what he says in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. The root of where we get Yahweh. And he said this to the people of Israel. I, and he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. One of the things you find when you study the Bible is names matter, don't they? That you see as, as, as God and his providence has given people names. We've already seen that with the name of Moses in this book, the one who draws out. Well, uh, God's name that he review, re, reveals here, I am who I am, this, this expression of Yahweh, it deeply matters. And there's so much. We, we, could spend, we could spend 15 sermons just unpacking the name of God as it's revealed here. But let me just scratch the surface for us. When God says, my name is I am who I am, he is revealing to us that he is the self-existent one. That there, there is no source or origin in which God comes from. He is the uncreated one who created everything. He is the highest. He is the beginning and the end. There is nothing bigger than him and there's nothing before him. Now, think about that. There are times when you're going to try to describe who someone is. You're like, how can I help this person understand who this is? Oh, that, that's Bill. That's Jim and Susie's son. Or that's Lisa. Uh, she, she's a banker down the road at such and such a place. There is no other way to attach God to something bigger or something before him. He says, I am who I am. I'm the self-existent one. And as the self-existent one, he proclaims, I am the self-sufficient one. Do you know, and you do know this, but let's dwell on it. There is no one or nothing keeping our God alive. There is no one or nothing that God is dependent on. Think of how not God we are in this room. The next breath you will take right now is only given to you because God is sustaining that breath in you. Everything else in all of creation is being sustained by the goodness of the mercy of a powerful God. 
He is the self-sufficient one. So write this down. Our God is the self-existent one. He's the self-sufficient one. There is no one or nothing that is sustaining the power and the might and the eternality of who he is. Now, this actually has a lot of application to us. If God is the great I am, we are the great I am not. And if we think about it, our highest treason against a holy, self-sufficient God is when we put ourselves right smack dab in the universe and think that we don't need him. That this world doesn't exist for him. And that instead of him being at the center, we should actually be at the center. We don't do this like, we often don't say, right now I'm about to make a decision that puts me instead of God at the center. There's this reality that reaches all the way back to Eden. When God had laid out a way and he said to Adam and Eve, this is my way, this is my way, this is my way. And Adam and Eve instead said, well, what about this way? And every single day, we are faced with little constant decisions where we either remind ourselves, Lord, you are the great I am and I am the great I am not. And we keep him rightfully on the throne where he deserves or we kick him out of there and say, God, I don't need you for this. God, I got this. And God, right now, I want to be at the center. The beauty of the reminder for us today is that we are not the I am. This sounds so like harsh and unkind, but it's the kindest thing I could remind us of today. We are the great I am nots. We are created ones made by the creator I am. He gets all the glory. We are sustained ones, being sustained by the great sustainer I am. He gets all the glory. We are dependent ones, dependent on him for everything, made by the independent great I am. He gets all the glory. And so, uh, church, if you would just stand, we're going to sing here. And as we sing, and you, you know this song if you've been around here any time at all, as we sing, we're rehearsing for ourselves what we've just been confronted by in the scriptures that God is the Holy One who goes with us, who's the, who's the great I am. And the greatest news for us today is not that we are great like Him. No, we are the great I am nots who this great God has promised to go with. So let's just sing this and rehearse it as we go out into it.